You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. As is our custom, we walk through books of the Bible uh, or walk through topics of the Bible uh, as, as they are presented. And so I want to invite you to join us uh, in Matthew chapter 18. Now, if you don't have a smartphone that'll get you there, then, then do me a favor. You'll see a paperback Bible in the tray of the chair in front of you. Uh, and, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, do me a favor and make that our gift to you. And even make that a gift to anyone you know who doesn't have a Bible. Uh, we believe that when we open God's word, something powerful happens. It actually begins to open us by the power of God's spirit. And so as we've been doing that, uh, kind of engaging in that regular custom of opening the scripture, letting it speak to us, we're in the first book of the New Testament. That is the gospel, one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus, telling us the good news. That's what the word gospel means. The good news of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And in the 18th chapter, we find ourselves in the fourth major discourse. Now, Matthew didn't head off the chapter that way, but that's a good way for me, I know, to to kind of get my bearings about where we are. There's five major discourses, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, the most famous sermon ever recorded. And in the fourth major discourse, major discourse, we have the church. Jesus begins to teach on and give us a preview about the community that would be shaped by this gospel, this good news, what the community would look like. And so last week we saw that there's three major components, that we will be humble like a child, we'll be sinners who are forgiven, and we will be the lost who have been found by the good shepherd. And it serves as the, in this sense, the, the foundation into the preview of the function of this community that we have in verse 15 through 20. So I'm going to read verse 1 through verse 20. We're going to spend our time looking at verses 15 through 20, but I want you to see it in context. As Jesus is teaching about what the church will be and what I want to invite you to consider belonging to, whether it's Connection Church or any other gospel-believing church, we see the groundwork laid in the first 14 verses and then the picture of how this church will function in light of Jesus. Beginning in verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away for it is better, it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? 
If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 who never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. As has been our custom, I want to begin our time thinking about the church and this section of the 18th chapter of Matthew with a question. And it'll go something like this. How would your life change if there was no such thing as a mirror or a photograph or a video? How much time maybe have you spent looking at yourself in a mirror even today? Think about that. And ask this question, how would you conceive of or understand or know yourself if there was no such thing as a mirror? If there were no such invention as a photograph? If there were no such creation as a video? How would you know what you're really like? Maybe a better question to add on to that is, who would you listen to? Who in your life would you trust to tell you what you really look like? Who in your life would you allow to correct you about what is true about you? Because maybe that's the better way to ask this in the deepest possible sense. How do you know what is true about you? How do you know? Who taught you what's true about you? Where did that information come from? What's the reliable source who would you allow to give you a better perspective on what you're really like? What comes to mind? Because here's the thing, apart from an outside source, for instance, like a mirror, you have no idea what your face looks like. Apart from an outside source, you have no idea what you are like. And I want to convince you that that is not a flaw, that is a feature. That is a reflection of God's good creation for humanity. God has designed us to be revealed in relationship. That's how he designed us. In fact, that's how we image or we bear his image. After all, God alone is revealed through relationship. I'm paraphrasing John chapter 5, 11, chapter 7, and 17 when, when we think in terms of 
of knowing the Father only through the Son. We only know what the Father is like as we see how he's related to the creation that he's laid out for us. The overflow of his character is visible in his relationship to the world and to us. And we only know the Father, Jesus tells us through the Son, that the Father is good, that he has a redemptive purpose for us. We only know the Son, that is Jesus, through the Father. That is, uh, even when the disciples of Jesus come to him and say, show us the Father. And what does he say in response? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. We only know the Spirit of God because we see that he has been sent from, as a second advocate, from Jesus. What we believe about God is revealed in the relationship he has to himself in the mysterious nature of the Godhead, what we call the Trinity. But we also only know one another as we were created in his image through outside sources. Apart from an outside source, you don't really even know what you're like. I mean, just think about it for one moment, right? You, every one of you right now knows what my face looks like infinitely better than I do. I have no clue. And that is not a flaw, that is a feature. I'm only meant to be known. I'm only meant to be understood as I am reflected or as others help me to see. And that's true of you because no one knows what, uh, no one knows what your face looks like right now, right? Less than you. And if you don't believe me, you have a booger on your nose. Try not to touch your nose. I dare you to try, right? But I pose to you a mystery that as we see the function of this community of faith is that it is good news. It is good news that God has created us to receive and understand who we are and what we are like from outside of us. And I want to make a bold aspiration known to you today. As we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, the first instance of the mention of the New Testament church was in Matthew chapter 16, in which we found out that the church will be built upon this foundation, this declaration of this good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Redeemer, the Sustainer, our Advocate. And I want to convince you, in light of this text, to join a local church, to commit to it, to lay down your life for it, to invite its input. I believe it so much that if every single one of you, even now, stopped attending this gathering of Connection Church, but were faithfully thriving in another church, it would be a win. Even if it's not Connection Church, and even if it costs Connection Church its life, that you would thrive in other churches, that would be a win. It's worth it. And I want you to invite other believers in Jesus, other members of a local church, guided by the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to give care to your soul. And I want you to know that if you don't do this, in light of what we just read, if there aren't other people that you trust to say what's really true about you, then your soul is in danger. And I want you to know there's a greater joy and a greater safety and a greater security in receiving what is said about us from those shaped by the Holy Spirit than there is in anything else. So that's the sales pitch today. I won't even hide it. And we see here in the verses we read that we, as the local church, restore one another. And you saw how that happens. There's a process of, of 
people, individuals in the local church who, who reach out to restore and to seek out and redeem people who are wandering. And there are promises that God gives to his church in the middle of that restoration. So notice in the text we just read from verse 15, verse 20, there's this concern with restoring those, quite literally brothers and sisters, who have been led astray. Now, we already heard last week about what those little ones who have been led astray are before the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go found them. But but that means that in light of what God has done for us as the good shepherd in Christ, we're now working for the restoration for the sinner. And we're doing it as unobtrusively as possible. Did you notice it escalates from one person going privately to one person, a couple of people going to a person, and then the local church speaking a word over that person. Now, it's good that that works that way, right? Because a crowd would be a a tough place to to start, right? It's a kindness, right? It'd be like right now, I just kind of outed your sin in front of everyone else, or you confronted me in front of everyone else. That is not a gracious thing, but but notice how kind and gracious God is. There's a, a process by which we lovingly work through this. There's an escalating involvement of others that that ensures that it will be accurate, that it won't be some sort of a conspiracy. It will be insurance about what's right and what's true about the person involved. But we also see that the gathered church is free to declare with confidence the very mind of Christ. And its prayers are heard. And the very presence of Jesus himself is with those who gather in light of this. So there's two parts. Part one, 15, 16, and 17, you see uh, an escalating process of care and love. Formative discipline is what I'll call it. And then verse 18 through 20, you get to see the promises that ensure it. And I will walk through this briefly, and then I'll give us some applications that I hope will invite you to belong to a local church, that you would belong to and be a part of every beautiful thing that Jesus has laid out in these verses, that you wouldn't miss out on a single thing that God has laid out for us to enjoy here. The church is made up of those who know Remember, in light of verse 14, that they are helpless children adopted by God the Father. That they are sinners in need of forgiveness. And they are lost wanderers who are found and rescued by the Good Shepherd. That's the basis of this. And I'll I'll call back to it regularly because the extent to which you understand uh, kind of the basis in the first 14 verses is the extent to which verse 15 and beyond will make sense. That is, if you don't see yourself as a helpless child in need of God's grace, the church will be a waste of your time. If you don't see yourself as a sinner in need of forgiveness, this, the church will be a waste of time. And if you don't see yourself as a lost, wandering person, then the church will be a complete waste of time. And so if you're not a believer in this room, maybe if you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. I want to hear what it is that the church has to say, what good news we have to offer. So in the very first verses, we see the goal in a brother or a sister going to a brother or a sister one-on-one in private is this, that the church's task is to win over the sinner to Christ. That's it. Every single week, I stand up here and make a pitch that you would see the glory and beauty of Christ and he would satisfy you, grant you all the comfort that you might desire. And we sing the very same thing. The people singing say the same thing. Jesus is something, right? Jesus is is a satisfaction you and I long for in our own lives. And the church is simply the, the committed following of people who say, yes, that's our goal. We're simply joining in the mission of the good shepherd to draw people to themselves, or excuse me, draw people to himself. Now notice the language of brother and sister is the language of coming under the fatherhood of God. God is our parent. 
God is the one who supplies the familial care and focus. It's not a policy and procedure manual here. And notice, it's not one person exercising some sort of authority over one another. There's a level playing field here that any of us that see ourselves as as children adopted by God, sinners saved and forgiven by Christ, and wanderers found by the Good Shepherd, have the Spirit of God in us to help form one another in this. It might be a callback even from Leviticus chapter 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your brother or your neighbor, lest you incur sin on behalf of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord your God. You get this idea that in light of the fatherhood of God, we see one another as brother and sister. We're a community working against then gossip and slander for the sake of truth and love. Look at that phrase there. It says that you, if your brother sins against you, and I would contend to you the word, if there is polite, um, it would be better to be understood, at least just from my perspective, if the word there was when, when your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him or her his fault between you and him or her alone. Now notice the care. That is that We fight against gossip and slander with truth and love. And so I've said this before, it's like uh, if someone hurts you, offends you, wrongs you, rightly or wrongly, maybe you even misunderstood it, maybe it's awful. Here's the thing. There are two places you should take that. Number one is to God the Father, and number two is to that person. The only time you should have a third party where you invite someone else to know something about someone else, I would say there's two good cases. Number one, you are throwing that person a surprise party which is encouraged. So if you all are talking behind my back right now because you want to throw a surprise party, carry on, right? Because ultimately that, right, even though it's behind the back, it's for the purpose and the good of that person. The second case is if you're seeking wise counsel in order to do this, in order to move towards this person. Because after all, once I stop talking to you and I talk to someone else, what have I done? I have shown my back to that person. You've already turned away from them. So if if I go to another brother or sister right here about another brother or sister with any other purpose than to restore them, to win them back, to restore them, then there's a sense in which we've already gone off the mark. And thank God he gives us allowance for how we should do this in a way that honors and restores, brings truth and love and not slander and gossip. This is why the church is so careful about this. But also you see that the community of faith, the church, takes sin seriously. Now this is a callback to the the passage we saw before where Jesus offers a threat. Offers a threat for those of us who would lead others to sin, the little ones here. Which is why this passage makes sense in verse 15 that we're getting a picture of little ones who are wandering away. Brothers and sisters that are wandering away that our goal is to win them back. I think a principle we learn from this is that the church counts. Now, every church has freedom for how they do this. But they do, not freedom, they do not have the freedom to not do this. In the book of Acts, the very first times that we get a story of what the gospel is doing, it says, in those days, Acts chapter 1, verse 15, Peter stood up among the brothers, and the company of persons that were there, all in all, was 120. They're counting. They cared. They cared about who was in and who was out. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says, those who received the word and were baptized were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
They cared. It is love and grace to count. And again, if you think it is judgmental or harsh to count who is in the local church and out, next time a family loads up in a minivan, just say, don't worry, right? Don't, don't count, right? That would be an act of neglect, not love. It is good and right to know who is in and who is out. It is an act of love. 1 Timothy 5, you, you see the Apostle Paul giving Timothy guidance on how he should care, and he uses the same language of counting and caring. He says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. The church is entrusted with the care of the widows, and he says, enroll them. That is, take care. Take responsibility for those that are entrusted to your stewardship and be aware of it. So notice what we see here, this care of escalating uh, this formative discipline that goes to the person, not to others, but takes very careful attention over who is in and who is out. Now here, I'll just inf inform you here. The purpose of church membership, as we see it pictured here, like who is in the church, like tell it to the church, is not so that the church has the ability to look at a person and say, here's how I know this person is going to hell. I don't believe that's the goal. The goal here is that the church would be able to say, here's how I know that this person's going to heaven. Let me tell you about this person. Let me tell you about the Spirit's work in their life. Let me tell you their story of being changed from a helpless child to now an adopted child of God, from a wandering sinner to one found by the Savior. You get the idea? And so maybe this has been used in a way, maybe exclusion has been used in a way that has harmed you in the past. And all I want to do, I'm, hang on, next week, uh, the passage is entirely about forgiveness. And I hope, I, I really do think I can offer you tools for how to begin to experience forgiveness in that. Somebody wielded that badly. But ultimately, this idea of who is in and out is a picture of those who have experienced God's grace. So, we have an how-to for formative care and discipline. Think of it as an escalation, one-on-one. -on -one. People who love one another enough to care for them and say what's really true. Again, remember, it is impossible for me to know if I have something on my face unless someone helps me. Impossible. That's not a flaw. It's a feature. When I sleep, Something happens, maybe I'm emotional, I cry in my sleep, it's allergies, and I have, a crust, I have crusty eyes. And guess what? I have no idea. But you know who the Lord has given me so that I would know? I know it's gross, it's terrible, I wouldn't otherwise know. You'd be looking at it right now. If the Lord hadn't given me a wife. And the Lord has given us, the church, to remind us of what is true about us. Namely, that our sin does not get the last word, but the reconciling and restorative work of Christ does. So let me just ask you this, what person who is a member of a local church have you invited to correct you? What individual who's a member of a local church have you submitted yourself to? Because you know they see this better than you do. If you go to the next verse, verse 16, what two or three people who are members of the local church have you invited to offer you correction, to help you see what you cannot see? And then lastly, if we, if we just one-to-one -one here, what local church have you given permission to correct you? And friend, 
if you don't have an answer to those things, I'm so glad you're here. I've got steps that I think will help, some applications that I think will help. Because look at the promises that are applied, beginning in verse 18. The church's stewardship is to proclaim what Jesus says. After he gives us this picture of formative care, he tells us how we can know that it's good and will work. And the first one is that he says, look, the church has power to do something eternally. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The church has been entrusted with the message of the gospel. The church has been entrusted with the good news of what Christ has done for us. And that good news is eternal in nature. Not because of us. We're secondary to it, if that. And yet this is what God has invited us to do. And so friend, hear a mystery. I get to say to you, if you will look away from your sin, turn from finding hope and joy in lesser things, and trust in, place your faith in Jesus, you will be with him in paradise forever. And that's not a whimsical little fairy tale. That is, a, that is an eternal and powerful word that has the very blood of Jesus backing it up. And has, again, it has nothing to do with me, right? You could easily pick me apart. Like, well, who are you? I'm nobody, except that Jesus says that I'm supposed to do this. But I can also say another eternal word. If you will not turn from your sins and look upon the grace of God offered to you freely in Christ, then you will have your sins apart from him forever. You will be separated from all joy and comfort forever. And that, again, is not some strange fairy tale to scare you. That is the power of Jesus speaking through the church. The church's stewardship is to proclaim what Jesus said. And I know, friend, I know there are lots of good reasons that you could ignore what it is that the church says. Churches are made up of flawed, failed, sinful people. Let me put it in the words of this chapter. They're made up of helpless children. They're made up of sinful people. They're made up of wandering, lost people. But while you criticize for the church for all the reasons you shouldn't listen to them, you're missing out on the good news. That's who Jesus chose to save. And all I'll tell you is, join the club. And if you're too perfect for that or too perfect for this church, that's great. Go find another church. Problem is, that perfect church will be ruined once you show up. In the meantime, join. Join the helpless who have found hope. Join the sinners who have found atonement and forgiveness. Join the lost who have been rescued by the good shepherd. This is the stewardship. And I'm not saying it because it's creative. I'm saying it because the spirit has inspired it. And it has endured for 2,000 years. And here's the beautiful thing. If the church we see in Matthew chapter 16, if we fail to proclaim it, God will in his mercy wipe Connection Church off the face of the planet and raise up another church to do it for us. Church's stewardship is to proclaim what Jesus says. Namely, that he has come to restore and to redeem. The church's challenge is to trust our Father to provide what we need. Look at the next verse. It says that whatever we bind on earth, whatever we loose on earth will be loosed eternally. But he says, again, I say to you, as if to say, it's not the first time, but you need to remember this. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
Now, this can be a misuse and abuse, but we already covered this in the previous chapter, right? The, the faith of a mustard seed that will give anything, it'll move mountains, can be abused to, I don't know, maybe literally move mountains, but that's not what the first apostles did. Instead, the mountain that was moved is the mountain that, that was on top of us, that sin has been now leveled and removed for us. And this ask anything isn't meant to be abused, right? But what is it, what is it inviting us to do? If we ask God for a miracle, namely, did you hear it? That the helpless would find hope, that the sinners would find forgiveness, that the lost would meet the Savior, the shepherd, he will do it. He will do it. And I promise you, it won't be like you think. It won't be what you planned out, because you're not the shepherd, right? He's the shepherd. But if we look to him, he will do it. And so we ask God that he would redeem us, that he would renew us, that he would restore us, and they would add more to his family. Because we know that if we agree on that, it will be done. It's the Father's good pleasure to do such a thing. He sent his son to prove it. Now beware of a counterfeit, right? If I'm like, hey, I would really like to go on a a hot air balloon ride one day. And if one of you is like, in Jesus' name, I agree. You know, that... That's a counterfeit. You would agree? That's not the eternal hope that we're, this being spoken. So be, beware of a counterfeit. We, we only have authority to say what Jesus says, nothing more. But we have the promise that he will give us everything that we need. And the last little bit here is the church's gift is to enjoy the presence of Jesus among us. Look at that, verse 20. It could also be abused, I know, but for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. There is no organization that has ever existed in which the founder has promised to never leave or forsake it. There's not. And notice the gift that the church has. After we receive the grace as children who have been adopted, sinners who have been forgiven, wanderers who have been found, Jesus seals it, not by just granting those requests, but by giving us himself. After all, there's nothing better that God could give us than himself, and in Christ he does it. And so, friend, we get Jesus. And wherever two or three revel in that, celebrate that, this is the mystery. Jesus is here with us. Now, here's the cool part. I know there are stories in this room of ways that we have experienced Jesus meeting us. Ways that Jesus has somehow shown up and done something in us. And something through us that we couldn't have otherwise done. That's Jesus. That's the gift that the church gets. Jesus himself. No other organization gets it. So here are some applications. Here are some things I think will help us understand what we ought to do as a response of this. The church's stewardship is to proclaim what Jesus says. To believe that the Father will give us everything we need. And that Jesus will be with us every step of the way. As such, the way that the church is described in this chapter can be best summarized this way. The church is a people and not a place. This may seem like an obvious thing, but notice that the church is never referred to in the New Testament with respect to a time or location. So I even, as a way to be more biblical, when we first started, and I still say this with, with gospel community leaders, uh, we have like, an, like, I don't know, an imaginary swear jar to where if you ever say the phrase, go to church, you should put a dollar in the swear jar. It's made up, right? But it's meant to be a reminder of like, Oh, the church is a people, not a place. God indwells his people, 
not places or time or events. And that's important because after all, if the church is a place or an event and not a people, then you can live your life recklessly, carelessly, but as long as you show up on time, you're good. And so think, does the church gather and have events and do things? We call this a gathered worship service, right? That, but in this sense, like we're just attending an event. We're not going to church. You can't go to team. You can't go to family. It doesn't work that way, but you can belong to one. You can belong to those things. And this is beautiful because this protects us from any superficial understanding of the church, which I know you and I have many, many, many examples of this. The church is a people and not a place. It frees us from unhelpful, ungracious things. Right? I, I remember even when we, first, uh, when we first set out to plant Connection Church, I remember, I can tell you just a couple stories, I feel like a thousand of these. One of them, I remember a person saying like, um, uh, does your church have puppet, does it have a puppet ministry? And, and I, I only want to be a part of a church that, uh, I, it's like, I only want to go to a church that has puppets. And I just remember like, I'm sure there was a wise pastor who knew what to say. I just wasn't that guy. I was like, you want to see puppets get saved? Or like, that's, those are the things that, like, huh? And so praise God, that person I hope found and is belonging to a church that's making much of Jesus through puppets. And maybe one day we'll do the same. But think like, thank God we're not bound to that. Thank God that's a freedom. That's a freedom that comes with the stewardship of declaring Christ, of trusting his promises and experiencing his presence. And it keeps us from things that would derail us. I remember one other person was like, I, I, I could only go to a church that has an organ, a pipe organ. And I was like, okay, also, good, good luck, right? Um, if I get an extra two and a half million dollars, I'm going to buy us a big, bigger parking lot and tell more people about Jesus with it. Um, but praise, you get the idea? Like, it, this protects us. When, the, when we think of the church as a people, it protects us from superficial things. Can you have those things? Yes, but they serve as lousy saviors. And don't let them fool you into thinking that this is the people of God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. And this is a long one, but I'm trying to connect all the dots from Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. So hang with me. Are you ready? Fine print on the yeah, Here we go. We are the ones who, the second application, we're the ones who, like Matthew chapter 16, having confessed the good news that Jesus is the Christ, our Lord and Savior. We see ourselves ultimately as the helpless who have been helped. That's in the first three verses of this chapter. As sinners who have been forgiven and restored, that's in the next few verses of this chapter, and the lost who have been found, that's in the last few verses leading up to this passage, such that, and now we come to our text, such that we seek to win back and restore any of those little ones that were described who wanders away into sin. I know it's a mouthful, but I want you to connect all the dots of the chapter. Because after all, if you don't see yourself as a lost person, a helpless person, a sinful person who has received abundant grace, then verse 15 through 20 will be used as a weapon of law, legalism, and harm. And here's the thing, I bet we could go around the room and tell stories. But insofar as we understand that we were the little ones who have been adopted, we are the sinful ones for whose sin Christ took seriously and paid with his own blood. We are the wanderers who are lost, who have been drawn back by the good shepherd. When you get that, then restoring one another makes sense. Apart from that, well, I don't need to tell you any stories of how that could go wrong. 
Verse 15 only makes sense in a light of the first 14 verses. And after all, if you don't need help, if you don't see the helplessness to fix the world and fix what's broken in you, then you won't need Jesus and you won't need his church. If you're perfect and without sin, then you won't need Jesus and you won't need his church. If you're not wandering, if you've got it figured out, you know everything that's going to happen in your life, then you won't need Jesus or his church. But we believe that we are the helpless, sinful, lost people who have been adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and restored by Christ. And so it is with the church. And we simply try our best by God's grace to function accordingly. We need forgiveness, help. So connect all the dots that as members of the local church, we're seeking to simply win those, win those back from sin who've been led astray. Because we know that when we were helpless, God helped us. When we were stumbling into sin, God picked us up and we were wandering away. God sought us out in Christ and rescued us. Now, I want you to see also one of the applications is that individualism will be the largest barrier to church membership. I want to reflect a little bit on this and it'll be probably where we, hopefully, you know, the most helpful, I think. And here's, if I were to sum up the, the axiom of individualism, I would say it this way, that you will think that you know yourself better than others know you. Now, to be fair, to be fair, individualism is a great social theory if you want to topple a communistic dictatorship. It's helpful, right? But I want to warn you, it makes a lousy savior, which is funny because at the top of every autocratic dictatorship, there's an individualist, right? Who's like, right, never mind. But individualism, the belief that you have autonomy, you know and understand yourself, you are the source of your own identity, you are the source of your own happiness, this will rob you of the good news of what comes outside of us. Because here's the, here's, if I were to kind of sum it up, as you might have heard me paraphrase this, like the cultural societal narrative, and Disney tells this story better than anyone else, is that the problem, your biggest problem is outside of yourself. And the solution is inside of you. And you just got to discover it, right? Find yourself, right? And then forgive yourself. And then express yourself, right? Just let it go. You can hear Disney telling you. And forget those people who don't agree with you, right? Right? Children's narratives tell us the story the best. And I, I, I keep repeating it because this is a real thing. There's a children's movie about a pig who was apparently a sheepdog. But he's a pig. His name is Babe. And the, the, the heroic work of this, of this pig is that he proved everyone else that he really was a sheepdog, even though we all, you get the idea, right? I want you to realize that will rob you of joy. That makes a good, right, it makes a good fairy tale, but it won't give you joy. The gospel, the good news is that the worst thing about you is you. No one has harmed you or betrayed you more than you. No one has disappointed you or lied to you more than you. Your problem is internal, but thanks be to God, we look outside of ourselves and find that Christ has offered everything we need. And in Christ, all that is broken in us is credited alongside him so that we get everything we don't deserve that he does. And he gets all the things we deserve that he doesn't. And when we realize this and we look to him apart from ourselves, we find real hope but you will think that you know yourself better than others, right? And even right now, you, will, you, will, you, you, probably, you are offended at the thought 
that you can't see your own face right now. And I'll just I'll glare at you just so you feel it. I see your face, right? You will be offended until you realize it's a grace. And you will find this to be true. That there is a God who knows you better than you can imagine. The Bible tells us he knows you because he knit you together even in your mother's womb. There's not a single thing about you, not a single feature that's an accident. Oh, I know it feels like an accident to us. I, I wish I was different, right? I don't like who I am. I don't like what I've discovered that I am. But I'll be tempted to think that, that what I see in myself is what defines me. And that will work for a while. That will work for a little bit. But that's not how God created you to thrive. Now, now, an anecdotal example of this is like if you know any married people in the room, go talk to them about this. Um, anyone who's been married longer than 10 seconds knows this. And if you've been married a while, there'll be some wise people in the room. And they'll all say the same thing unless they're about to get a divorce. Uh, and they'll say something like, my spouse knows me better than I know myself. And that's the picture of the image of God's created order. And you'll either be afraid of that, and you'll read Matthew chapter 18 and like, oh, I don't want anyone to know this, or you'll realize it's a grace. And there's freedom that comes from it. Apparently, right before I go to sleep, I make these really like, I don't know, baby-like noises on the way off to sleep. I mean, really like, eh, I mean, just, <laughs> I didn't know that. But I sensed something about that, and several years into our marriage, when I, when I would do something like that, it would wake me up, and I would go, uh, 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 mm, hur, and I would like play it off. <laughs> I mean, it, and one, one night, my wife just says to me, she goes like, ever since we've been married, you make those little noises before you go to bed. You don't have to act like you're not doing it anymore. <laughs> and I want to tell you what a weight was lifted off of my shoulders. Thank God I have to stop covering this thing up. Right, because in my head I was kind of like, she won't love or like me if I make these effeminate little girly, like baby purring kitten noises before I go to sleep. And I found out something. She knew more about me than I knew about myself and loved me anyway. And there was a greater love that I got to experience when I stopped faking it. You get the idea? You'll think you know what's really true about yourself until you realize that there's a grace in knowing that there's one who created you to redeem you and restore you and sustain you. Now, maybe this kind of radical individualism that we've been steeped in will hinder us, I think, in other ways. We will ultimately think that we have personal autonomy and as a result, when you read Matthew chapter 18, you will read Matthew chapter 18 as being outed rather than being found. And I just want you to know when, when you feel it, when, when you think about God and others seeing your sin and, and you think, and it makes you feel outed and scared, I want to comfort you with the gospel. You're not being outed, you're being found. You're being seen, you're being known. Known by God the Father who does not want you to live as a stranger and a wanderer. I want you to also see formative discipline is happening all the time. 
just really briefly, you saw that first little bit there where whenever the one person goes to a one, another person alone. I, I simply want to offer this as a commendation. This is happening all the time. Uh, this is happening in the life of Connection Church. Uh, this is why uh, we have what, what gracious gifts we already get to enjoy as a church is because of this. It's because individuals lay down their own selves and love and care for others. This is why, like, there's, there's no greater gift than a person who loves you and cares for you enough to say, hey, I noticed this about you. I think you might be missing out on the greater grace that's available. In love, in care, in grace. Church membership is simply the outworking of being able to see yourself as one who has been helped when you're helpless, and God gives people to do that. To get forgiveness when you need it, and God gives people to do that. And to be found when you're lost and wandering, and God gives people to do that. It's the only way that it works. So if you, think of being dis- if you think of this formative discipleship as being outed, you're missing out on the fact that ultimately that's just your shame talking, or that's the enemy talking. Or it might just be the Holy Spirit trying to convict you of sin so that you'd be free once and for all. So start there. Formative discipline is simply a, a fancy way of saying friendship. And if you don't have friends who love you enough to correct you and still be friends with you afterward, then here's a painful truth. You don't have friends. But friendship is what happens when people know you for what you really are and love and care for you anyway. And when you see through them, you see the grace of God towards us. Well, why would we do this? Why would we subject ourselves to this? Well, it's right nestled into the guts of this where it says here that what the church declares has eternal power. So I, I want to propose to you two things that I think will compel you to be a part of a local church. What Jesus says about you is better than anything you could say about yourself. And what his people, that is the church, say about you is better than anything you could say about yourself. Now, I, I know that doesn't seem believable for many of you at, the, at right now, Right? but I want you to hear the good news of what Jesus says when he looks at you and me and says, these, these are my family and friends. When he looks from the cross and says, Father, forgive them. And when he is paid with his last breath, he says, it's finished. And when he's resurrected and he meets those betrayers, he says what? Peace be with you. What Jesus says to and about you is better than what anything you could say about yourself or anyone else. And so therefore, the church that has been a steward of what Jesus has said about us, namely that we are those redeemed by his grace, that we will experience his presence and all the pleasures that come alongside that forever and ever. There's nothing that anyone can promise you that's better. Nothing. Remember that question that we opened with? How do you know what's true about you? Could I invite you to consider these axioms? Would you consider the possibility that what Jesus knows and says about you is better than what you could hear anywhere else? It's just better. He sees and knows you as you really are, and so he's able to heal, redeem, to heal, redeem, and restore better than anything else. And there are other endorsements that the world could give, but these endorsements from Jesus and the church, did you hear it? are forever. And that's good. They come with the authority of Jesus. They're signed and sealed with the presence of Jesus. And what the church says to you and about you in membership is better than what anyone else can say. 
And you'll say, well, I really know myself better. Friend, that's just Satan trying to convince you you don't have boogers on your face. You wouldn't know if you did or didn't anyway. I mean, after all, according to this passage, there's a group of the people called there's a group of people called the church. And if you don't have people around you who remind you what's true in Jesus, then you're wandering. And I hope you hear the voice of the shepherd as he calls you back. There's a belief that our value and worth and identity comes from inside ourselves. It's contended for across the spectrum right now. And I want you, I want you to know that is a false hope. Because maybe you feel good about yourself. Maybe you feel fairly aware, right? Maybe you have high self-esteem today. But you and I know how that fails. And I don't want you to rest on your self-esteem because it will run out. I want you to rest on God's esteem. I want you to rest in what Christ says to and about us. Because like I said, individualism is really good at tearing down a communist dictatorship. But it makes a lousy savior. It doesn't really satisfy your soul. So here's some next steps for you. I'll give you seven. You'll find yourself somewhere on this. We'll pray and be done with our time in this. This is, my, this is my last pitch. Here's some next steps. One, hear and believe what Jesus says about you. You're his. You belong to him. And for those that trust in him, it never fades. And he won't give up on you, even when you've given up on yourself. Two, if, that, if that's true and trustworthy, hear and believe what the community of the gospel says about you. Hear what the church says. Hear what we sing. Hear what hopefully in the most sanctified light I say. Will they do this perfectly? Absolutely not. But in that is the gospel. If you're like, the church is a mess, the church is a wreck. Well, first, thanks that God's given you the spirit of criticism. We're so blessed by it. But here's the thing. The more you criticize the church and how broken and busted she is, the more amazing it is that Jesus loves and, sa and sac sacrificed himself for her. You get it? So friend, dump away on the church. She's a wreck. She absolutely is. But she belongs to Jesus. Third, submit to one person, right? Walk through these verses. Here's the next step for you. Submit to one person. One person who is a member of a local church. Okay, I say it has to be a member of a local church. Otherwise, you're just going to submit to someone who doesn't submit to anyone. It's going to be like cheating off each other's papers and then grading them afterward. Not going to be helpful, right? It, just, it won't, just functionally, practically, right? So the context of the local church here in Matthew 18 says, like, so just start there. If you're like, man, the church is a mess. I, well, I don't know. Just, just jump out on a limb with me. Invite one person who's a member of a local church and just say this. Hey, would you do me a favor? Would you care for my soul? Would you remind me of what's true in Christ when I forget? Will you pursue me, text me, right? Call me when I wander off. Will you help me begin to be all the grace that's promised for us here in this passage? Just one person. Just start there. That might take a while, but even then, I promise you, you'll be surprised at how much grace God will give. Just one person. And if you've mastered that, or at least graduated to the next one, look at the next verse, invite two, maybe even three people. Submit to them who submit to a local church. Same thing. Just say, hey, would you two people remind me of God's grace when I forget? Help me to come back to Jesus when I wander. You get it? And then lastly, submit to a local church. 
That's what membership is, however a local church does it. Ask a local church to do this. And if it means Connection Church, then hey, submit to this local church. Inside Connections happen next, right, the, next, the second Sunday of next month. Come hear the story of, of Connection Church. June, uh, in June, uh, the first Sunday, the fourth, we're going to have a membership class. Begin to, yeah. Everyone who knows I'm bad at dates just laughed. That was, that was not, you weren't even subtle about it. It's June the 4th. It's written down here. Membership class, June the 4th, okay? <laughs> See? I need help. I need help. I'm a needy, helpless person apart from Christ and people who have calendars, right? Submit to this local church. And I'm, I'm telling you, if it's not Connection Church, I'm, I mean this. If you think I'm just saying this because it's self-serving, I'm okay with that. Then go join a church and submit to it so that you will experience this. I mean it. Jesus is too good for you to miss out on this. And his people have been entrusted with a message that's too valuable. And I'll warn you, right? Individualism will say you know better, but that won't satisfy you. And I just, I want to warn you before, you before you stop attending, think of it this way as like, the church is a people and not a place. And so a lot of people are like, well, I'm going to go attend this other church. Um, and I just want to offer some corrective counsel for you. A lot of times people who are not a member of a church will say, I'm leaving the church. You can't leave something you never, didn't ever commit to or belong to. So be, be careful of that language that we might use. Individualism, individualism says I belong to this because I attended it. Right? It's not true. We really trust what Christ says over us. We trust what the church says. We love their endorsement of our faith. We think it's a grace. But most people who have like attended and are like, Connection Church is a joke, blah, blah, blah. Right? I, you're right. It is a joke. That's, and God gets the glory for it. I don't know how that works. It's his miracle. It's his mystery. I'm right with you. But they're like, I don't want to belong to this local church. I'm going to go belong to another church. And if you stumbled around with individualism and consumerism for the last couple of years or months, friend, jump on the list, right? Hear the good news of Jesus. Hear what the church declares. But notice that you probably in the next year won't actually submit to another church because the problem wasn't the church. The problem was you. And that's okay. Why? Because I want you to hear and believe the good news of what Jesus says about you. You aren't a wanderer. You aren't an island. You aren't alone. You aren't abandoned. You aren't forsaken. You hear it? And I'll let that change the way this works. Now, if all of those things bore you, look at number seven. Repeat and multiply. Invite others to experience this good news. Praise God. You and I are in a room right now where we have heard the hope of Jesus, but your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, they are living right now without hope. And you have it. You have it. You have the grace. You know what Jesus says about you, even on your worst day. Repeat and multiply. So friend, what's holding you back? What are you waiting for? Come in where there's grace. Be reminded of what Jesus says about you. Be reminded that it's better of, than what you say about yourself. Your hesitation in this area is probably because of two things. One, you think what you say is better and it will fail, or you think what other people is saying is better, and it will fail. And I just want you to know, when they fail, we'll be right here going like, welcome. Welcome to the list of failures. Welcome to those who have been redeemed by Christ. There's no other group that is historically and publicly committed to telling people the good news of Jesus like the church. And our sales pitch is different, because everything I'm offering you will cost you nothing. Everything that I'm offering has been paid for in full by Jesus. So friend, 
things might be worse than you think, but your days ahead of you are brighter than you could imagine. And here's the beautiful thing. Anyone can get in on this. <laughs> Anyone can get on this. Anyone can hear and receive what Christ declares to them. Any one of us can receive by faith. And so this is what the local church is, a picture of those who were helpless and have found help, who were sinning and sinful and found forgiveness, who were wandering and have found the good shepherd because he found us. So let's pray and thank God for this as we sing about this good news in a moment. Jesus, thank you so much that you are good and merciful. Thank you that you hold fast to us when we wander. Thank you that our, your grip on us is more important than our grip on you. Thank you for the mercy that is available in that. Lord, I know right now many in this room uh, with, with right and good skepticism probably like what they say about themselves more than what someone else might say. And right now the thought of someone correcting them or forming them or, or pointing out their sin seems like they would be outed. And I want you to remind them even now it's not being outed, it's being found. And the way we live in light of this in the local church is a picture of how found we truly are. So Lord, in, in your mysterious providence, would you give us all that we need? If it's first just to invite someone to care for us and help us see what's true about us, to remind us of what Christ says about us, help us to, do, help us to confess all the barriers that are in the way from that. Help us to confess all the fear. Help us to confess and admit all the shame. God, help us to confess and admit all the wounds. I know for many in this room, this whole thing has been used to hurt them. Lord, invite them now to experience the grace to confess those wounds. Respond now with your presence. Be with us to heal and restore. Give us a vision for what we might experience by your proclamation over us. Give us an experience of what the empty tomb declares over our lives and help us now to be a community of faith rooted in formed in functioning in and shaped by this good news of the resurrected Christ Lord you can you're the only one who can do this uh, your promises are the only ones that will last now help ours to come in line with by faith all that you've granted to us in Jesus name amen